the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab 827 for Monday, August 3rd, 2020. <laughs> to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We try to answer them. We try to enhance everyone's knowledge. We share our own tips. We share our own cool stuff found. The goal is for each and every one of us to earn. Earn? Well, you can earn them, but you can also just learn five new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include plushcare.com slash MGG, a new one textexpander.com slash podcast and linode.com slash mgg i've got a different idea about how to tell you about linode today so if, even if you've heard it before listen again trust me go go with me on this we'll talk about all those later in the show that's what i mean uh for now here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and here in fearful connecticut this is john f braun john f braun let's um We've, you know, we get all kinds of different questions in things sort of pile up. We've got a bunch of geek challenges today. So I want to go and like dive in a little bit on, on some things. It might get a little geeky. We do have some quick tips to start with though, because you know, like we love the quick tips and we can't really get away from those. Um, we can't let ourselves get away from those, but, um, but yeah, then let's, let's see, let's see where this goes. If we give ourselves the opportunity to have a little jam session. So, uh, but we'll start with our favorite quick tips. Roger writes in with, uh, he says, I think this showed up in iOS 13. If it's in earlier versions, I never knew it. If you do a screenshot and do nothing else, the picture gets saved in photos as usual. I recently noticed that if you tap on the screenshot photo that goes uh, to the bottom left corner within about five seconds, the screenshot photo fills the screen and you get several options. One option allows you to make edits and markups to the screenshot photo. Another option allows you to save the picture to somewhere other than to photos. Finally, you can share the screenshot directly without having to open photos and then share it from within photos. If you share it this way, the screenshot photo is not saved in photos, so you don't have to go back later and delete it if you prefer not to save the screenshot uh, long term. Yeah, absolutely. I do this all the time. And you're right. I believe you're right that iOS 13 is where this first showed up. Um, this also is true on the Mac if you use the new screenshot functionality, so command shift three and command shift four are still there. And now there's command shift five in Catalina and Catalina, that same little thing happens. It's not in the lower left. It's in the lower right. And, uh, and when it gets down there, you can either leave it alone. And if you do, it'll save it to your, uh, screenshots destination, wherever that may be. Uh, or if you click on it, you get an edit window and you can do all those things and then save it or not save it, but you can share directly from there. So yeah, it's pretty, uh, I, they've added a lot. I'm, I agree. I'm, any, any, uh, anything to add there, Mr. Brown? I don't know. Every now and then, I don't know. I, I, I don't get the timing right, but okay. when I try to take a screenshot on my phone, sometimes I'll land on the the like shutdown 911 screen. Oh. Oh, you're still team home button on your phone, right? Right. Okay. And so the way to take the screenshot, I think, so maybe I'm just getting the timing wrong. You hold down the power button and then you hit the uh, the home button. Nice. Uh, screenshot. What the What's going on out there? You've got uh, some kind somebody's of Somebody's getting their lawn done. Oh, beautiful. Let me, uh, 
There you go. Cool. Fun. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, we will let John's lawn get done while McKay takes us through the uh, the next quick tip, uh, if I can get this right. So, Hi, John and Dave. McKay here. It's been a few years since I've had something to contribute to the show, but I think this cool stuff found that doubles as a tech mystery will be interesting to some viewers. For the past year or more, I've noticed that my mom's MacBook Air has looked off, uh, very subtly off. When using the Finder, I noticed that the gray alternating pattern in list view was very washed out and almost impossible to differentiate. However, I could get it to return if I placed another window over the Finder, and in the shadowed region from the drop shadow, I could see the alternating bars. When using Reddit, the vertical gray bars that link a comment to a child comment were also invisible, and a myriad other elements in the UI just looked as if they had less contrast. I thought perhaps her display on the MacBook was faulty, but this behavior persisted on her Apple Cinema display and on a third-party display that I had. Um, But this behavior did not persist on a fresh test account on the same machine. Uh Aha! My Google Foo proved inadequate to solve this issue, as when I searched for this problem, all of the results pointed to display calibration, and display calibration did not solve this issue. However, the other day I got the urge to try again, and looked around the accessibility features, and I found the control to fix her strange washed-out display. In System Preferences, Accessibility, and Display, the slider labeled display contrast was set one notch to the right. Uh Moving this back to the normal position made her display look normal. I've included screenshots to show the differences uh, between normal and not normal. No, that's, that's great. That, thank you, McKay. What a great little quick tip. You know, I was just on TDO with Kelly this week, John, talking about all the things that you can find in display preferences to enhance your system, even if you don't have a, you know, a physical need for, you know, for a lot of the things that are there. There are, there are things there that, that make a lot of sense for, for many of us to use. And also it's a place where you can change things in a way that you might not want to. So I I found that really interesting that his screenshots were not including the, I mean, it makes sense, but the screen with the, the, I like that test of doing a screenshot and seeing, does it have the problem? Because that tells you if it's a a physical problem with the monitor or is the system somehow artificially doing things. And uh, you know, this was great. I love it. I love the whole thing. Great little quick tip, but also Great sleuthing, great troubleshooting. Um, so thanks for sending that in, McKay. Very, very cool. Any thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? No, there's a, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I wonder how that got set. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the question, right? Is, <laughs> yep. Did it, uh, did it get set? Yeah, right. Who did that? Yeah, I have, and obviously we will we will never know unless it happens again, right? I always those sort of mysteries. It, I agree, it would be good to know, but mm, sometimes there's no way to know. So, all right, shall we? Uh, shall we go to Olga here, John, and dig into some of these geek challenges that we've been piling oh, actually, up? Actually, this is kind of handy. Maybe you could have seen this. So, 
Uh, on accessibility, there's a checkbox. We can say show status in menu bar. And then if you click on that, it'll show. Yeah, I don't think it shows the contrast setting, though. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Are it they... shows other things that are set. Oh, actually, I see. Yeah, I'm looking at mine. I'm looking at mine and yeah, everything's off, which is the way I want it. So Right. That's really interesting. I never realized that. Yeah, it doesn't you're right. It doesn't list everything. But cursor, um, magnification, invert colors, flash screen, mouse keys, alternate pointer actions. Okay, so it can show you some of these. That's handy. I like it. That's good. Good, good. Cool. All right, um, I will. Uh, I'll take us to Olga here, John. And uh, Olga says, may, "Maybe this one's easy, but I, I don't think any of these are." To be perfectly honest, the sound on my iMac became hard to hear. The volume control is at max. My hearing is fine. The output set is set to the internal speakers. The volume is consistently low in all apps. I hope that it's not a hardware problem, as I am out of warranty. Any thoughts? Okay. So, you know, uh, geek challenges here. So, uh, we will be doing this. Of course, anybody in our chat rooms at live.macgeekab.com, uh, while we're recording this, we'll hopefully chime in throughout any of these as you always do. So thank you. Um, but the thoughts that come to mind for me on this one, John, are, uh, first is to check the headphone port and make sure you don't accidentally have headphones plugged in with the volume cranked. You off, depending on your headphones and the impedance and, you know, how loud they are, you might be able to hear sound out of them if they're like open ear headphones or something laying on the desk near the iMac. Uh, I've seen this before and it's like, why is it so low? Oh, right. Because it's not actually coming out of the speakers. So confirming that it's coming out of the speakers and not somewhere else is a good first step. It sounds like you've probably done that, but, you know, trust me when I say I've seen this. <laughs> so that would be... um that would be step one. Step two, which you've definitely done, is to open the sound preference pane and make sure that your device for output is truly set to the thing that you think it's set to and that your volume is right. The next thing I would do is launch audio MIDI setup. Uh, it's in the applications utilities folder, I believe. But uh, you can also just launch it by you know spotlighting for audio space MIDI, and then you'll see audio MIDI setup and just launch that. Um, Go there, click on your speakers, and again here, make sure that the volume level there is correct. Another thing to test and even adjust in audio MIDI setup is to adjust the um, the the. I'm pulling it up here on my machine, and hopefully, I don't make a stupid mistake and and ruin our podcast audio. So, everybody, let me know if I, John, especially you, let me know if I go weird. But change the format from whatever format you have to another uh, sample size, like, you know, change it from 44.1 to 48K and then back. Um, I leave mine set at 44.1. A lot of people leave theirs set at 48. Um, but change it. Just make a change so that the system kind of has to reinitialize the audio drivers. Uh, but also check the sliders there because you will have different sliders for stereo here. And it's entirely possible that even though your master volume is all the way up, these may not be so this this really could be a place to to find that um for you if that doesn't work do an smc reset and we'll put a link in the uh in the show notes for that um I, any thoughts john i mean i've i've got some more but you know it's we're just riffing here so um 
I kind of like the next one you have there. We, we, go ahead. Take it. Maybe yet. Yeah. Well, um, another way to diagnose a problem is if you, uh, if you boot in a safe mode, um, that will boot with a core set of Apple extensions and not third party. Um, so right. I, I would try safe mode. And if the volume is normal there, then it's something that though I can't imagine what, but some uh, sound extension is, is getting in the way. Yeah. 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 Right. Th- th- yes. Some 30 third party thing. You know, there's a lot of apps out there. Um, most of them are reliable, but all of them can cause issues. You know, I mean, we we've, we've mentioned sound source. I mean, they, they all intentionally make changes. They sort of insert themselves into the stream to enhance or allow you different controls over the audio. So something like sound source or um, uh, like boom, another one, like any of these things that are built to enhance the sound might get be getting in the way. And yeah, that safe mode would do that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else on this one, but I don't, I think we've hit all our things. Hopefully audio MIDI setup and or safe mode kind of gets you past this. It, it sounds like, I mean, I know that it, it, this may not be Olga's issue, but, but in general, you know, there's, um, and you, you, you won't see this on an iMac, which is why it's definitely not Olga's issue. But if you're using a external display, a lot of times, if it's an HDMI display, they will have audio that you're sending as well. And sometimes by default, it just grabs that as the sound output device. And a lot of the speakers and displays like that are terrible. And even at full volume, just sound like they're not. So again, you know, that that you would see that if once you open sound preference pane and, and sort of chose unless you've got something like sound source running, right? Because sound source, you can set your system volume in, in sound preference pane, but then you can set individual apps to go to different devices, which is cool. But again, with great power and great flexibility comes great responsibility. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing you could look, so I was looking here and I do have some things. So, um, audio components can live in two different places. Okay. I'm looking right now. Yep. So uh, either library, so top level library audio uh, within there, there's actually a plugins folder and I have some things in there. So one thing I see, so for example, I have, uh, and I probably should get rid of this, Flip for Mac WMA import. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's left over from, uh, oh yeah, look at that, 2013. So, uh, oh, there's a sound component I can probably get rid of. <laughs> See, this, this like, this like extends or echoes back to last week, right? The, the, the mm-hmm. we're, we're adding to the case for the nuke and pave, right? By finding all of these things that are like, oh, right. yeah, that's there, but not, mm, mm, yeah. 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 And then your, um, home directory library also has an audio, uh, folder. So that stuff's in two different places. Yep. Yep. So, sure. uh, so they want to peek there and see if there's any old, uh, old cruff. Cool. But, uh, will you put those folders in the show notes just so we can, uh, we can link people to them, just type them out and we'll, we'll format them nice, nice and make them look like, you know, yep, yep. special code or whatever. Cool. All right. Um, let's go. Let's yeah, let's go to chip here. Thanks Olga. So it's a good fun little one. All right. 
So Chip asks, he says, I live in rural North Carolina and the only wired internet service which is available is AT&T DSL. I get six megabits per second down, 200 kilobits per second up, and that's when it's working. AT&T won't invest in VDSL or any other service. Indeed, rumor is they want out of copper entirely, but are unwilling to run fiber or cable to our rural development of about 50 homes and lots. There is coax cable uh, served by a company in an immediately adjacent area, but they won't run service to us because the ROI would not be up to their goals. Utilities are buried, so trenching would be expensive. They will be uh, they will magnanimously do so if we as a community come up with the three to four hundred thousand dollars. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. He says satellite works. But as you probably know, they give you 25 megabits down until you hit their caps, which are 20 to 30 gigs. He says right now I use about 100 gigs per month. After that, they slow you down to one megabit per second. You can't stream anything at one megabit. I might as well stick with AT&T. I've heard of the Rural Broadband Initiative, but it's grossly underfunded and it seems you need political pull to get their attention. I build websites for my friends. So you can imagine how this is killing me. Any ideas? Yeah. So this is, again, another geek challenge. Um, Would a cell connection work? You know, how is the cell service in your area? And if you had a fixed place device and it could just be a phone. That's, you know, tethered via USB to the right router that then shares with your house like that might work. And that essentially is what 5G will bring to our homes is something similar to that. It would be pack. It is packaged a little more nicely. And of course, if you've got 5G in your area, then that's yet another thing to consider. So that would be that would be the first thing I would look at because you get to control your own destiny with that sort of. I mean, you're still at the mercy of the people that are providing the cell service, but um, but it, it gets you there. The other one that came to my mind as I was kind of musing through this is what about a point to point Wi-Fi connection? Um, either a service, because there are some, especially in rural areas, there are point to point Wi-Fi services and Wi-Fi can go miles if it's focused, right? You know, and so that might get you there. And if there's not a service, do you have a friend in the adjacent development who would be willing to share their bandwidth with you uh, in uh, in exchange for sharing perhaps the cost of that bandwidth from the cable company? Because if you can get a point-to-point connection between them, you can build a uh, a point-to-point connection relatively inexpensively. You know, I, I mean, I think you're looking at, I think 500 bucks or less would get you the dish antennas that you would need to aim at each other. And, uh, and you can pass a lot of data across that. Uh, so I, so uh, again, you need point to point though. So that's the key. You need line of sight for the most part, but again, another, you know, thing, if you've got a friend over there, maybe you can strike a deal and, and have some, you know, nerdy fun while you're doing it. So I don't know. Those are the things that, that popped into my head, John, what do you, what do you got on this one? Um, <clears throat> yeah, actually the, uh, you know, I mean, Hey, it's, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, politician angle, um, could be worthwhile. I'll tell a short story here. We, uh, but we have a, a local system called next door. Okay. And, um, you know, where, where you can have uh, community chats and a lot of people complain about our, cable service which is optimum 
online. I'm happy with them, but a lot of people are not, and they report, you know, insufficient speed and reliability issues. And um, I think some of it is self-inflicted, but some is not. Okay. Um, yeah. you know, I remember, I had them come out here, but um, so we actually had it brought to the uh, enough people wrote our select woman that she actually commissioned a survey and then, uh, you know, relayed the results to, uh, to cable vision or, you know, the companies that offer service here huh. saying, Hey, you know, with more people home, my constituents are complaining about reliability and Hey, can you do something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right now you can kind of lean into that more people at home thing too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that happened, uh, another person told the story. So they actually got in touch with the FCC about the reliability and it took that to get them to call this person back and fix their, uh, fix their setup, which they did. Huh? So, um, yeah. Well, call the, and uh, as far as that rural, you know, broadband initiative, uh, you know, get in touch with your, uh, uh, congressperson and say, Hey, you know, I want a piece of that, you know, see yeah. if you can get us some of that dough. I think the dough's been allocated to to do it. It's just you, know, you got to try to get somebody's attention. You got to get somebody's attention to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting, cool. Uh, in our chat room, Brian Monroe uh, and Eric DSA. Uh, Eric says fixed wireless is the term that AT and T uses to call their home cell scenario. So that's you know one option out there. Um, and uh, and Brian Monroe says uh, fixed wireless can be cellular or it could be some microwave tech uh, that he's used before. So there might be options out there and and fixed on uh, 66 in in the chat room says by line of sight for point to point Wi-Fi. Would a tree branch or two be an issue? The answer is it it very well can. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I years ago told the story of my uncle who wanted to get Wi-Fi simply across the street to the cottage that he had bought and didn't want to pay uh, whoever it was, the provider for yet another home to connect. So he just, you know, he did point to point. And once every few years he had to, you know, get up on a ladder and cut, uh, you know, a hole in the branches essentially so that the line of sight could shoot through because when the leaves came in, in the spring, uh, the connection sort of quality went, you know, down. So, yeah. So yes, line of sight truly means, line of sight with this stuff, um, at least for any sort of reliable connection. Uh, yeah. So cool. All right. Thanks. Fun. See, I knew we would be having fun if we took a, a little more relaxed, geeky approach at this one. We won't do this every week, but this, I like, I'm liking this. Well, let's go to Craig, John. And uh, Craig asks, he says, I have an interesting mystery. I just recently discovered that my CPUs on a quad core iMac 2015 retina are mysteriously heating up each night for a momentary spike. This seems to be a recent thing as I review iStat menus CPU temp charts at least once a month. And this is new in the last month or so. Okay, so he knows what normal looks like. This is new, not normal. Uh, it's the new normal, I guess. Uh, below, oh, he gave, sent a screenshot showing the pattern. And sure enough, over a seven-day period, every night, the CPU temperature is heating up and it seems to be almost exactly at 11 PM, his time, maybe three to five minutes on either side. Uh, he says to his knowledge, no application or utility is set to run on the system at this time frame. Nothing that he has intentionally set up anyway. He says, um, while not seeing any app crashes or system crashes due to this problem just yet, I'm concerned that something minor could worsen or the spikes could become more uh, frequent and or longer in duration. Some relevant info. 
The internal hard drive was replaced with a one terabyte SSD over six months ago. Performance and stability has been excellent ever since that. He's running the latest build of Catalina, latest release build of Catalina. He says, I stay logged in 24 seven and his is the only account used on the system. Automatic updates are disabled. A dual drive SSD solution from OWC is con continuously connected to the system via USB three. It's AC powered, not bus powered. It's populated with a couple of one terabyte SSDs and it, and are used as separate drives. One of them is used as needed for projects. The other is a carbon copy cloner clone updated daily. Aha. Time machine backups to my Synology NAS launch at 8 p.m. and always complete before 10 p.m., including verification. Carbon Copy Cloner is set to run uh, every day at 5 a.m. Backblaze latest version running continuously. Native macOS mail client is used for personal email, which is generally left running 24-7, and Office 365 is on, but auto-updates are off. Okay, so, and I'm going to re read through a list of uh, always-on third-party apps just so that we kind of have it. Um, Memory Clean 2, Fantastical 3, Card Hop, Bartender, Sound Source, iStat Menus, SSD Reporter, Skitch, Parallel Tools, Clipboard. Um, okay, so other than observing what processes are running on the system around 11 p.m., which may in and of itself change the state, of course, right, Schrodinger's system, right? Uh, <laughs> where and what are the best built-in macOS logs to review evidence of what might be the root cause of this anomaly? So the, kind of the first thing I would do is start looking at not just your CPU temperature logs, but your CPU usage graphs for that same period in time. Is it heating up because the CPU is being used, which is a, a very reasonable presumption, but we don't want to make any presumptions, right? We want to make sure that, yes, the CPU is actually being used. Okay, now we know where to look because if the CPU is not being used and the temperature is spiking anyway, that's a whole different set of things to look at. But presuming that it, we confirm that the CPU is spiking, um, then obviously, yeah, like you said, start looking at what processes are running. I would do this via if i if you have another device or another mac especially i would turn on um ssh on on the mac in question which is in uh system preferences sharing remote management i believe is the right one right ah no sorry remote login so go to system preferences sharing remote login and then right there once you turn it on it'll say to log into this computer remotely type and then it'll tell you SSH space, your username at your Mac's IP address. All you need is that. Go to another Mac, open the terminal, type that in. Now you have, and then you, it'll ask you for your password, unless you've set up some other remote login and, and you're way ahead of us anyway. Um, once, you've, once you're in, now you're logged into that other Mac, but you haven't woken up the screen. Yes, you've woken up the Mac, but... In order to observe, we this is, you know, you're right. Schrodinger's principles apply here because we could mess this up. But um, this this is what I would do. And then I would run the top command. Um, and because top will sh top is essentially the, the terminal version of activity monitor. Really, I think it's probably the other way around because top has existed long before Mac OS. But anyway, uh, you're going to run top, which is essentially activity monitor from the terminal. And I will put a version of the top command that I like to run. I would do top space dash U, which sorts by CPU usage. So you're seeing at the top of the list, the thing that's using the most CPU. 
and then space dash S4, which tells it to update, to refresh the view every four seconds. Hopefully that will identify the problem um, or at least identify, you know, what's running. It takes quite a bit for a Mac to it, like, it's not just a quick launch of a process that's going to heat the CPU. It needs to be doing something, assuming it's the CPU, it needs to be doing something for a little while before the, the temple raise and then the, the fans spin up and, you know, all of those sort of cascade of things that happen. But, um, but it's, it, you're going to see something, you know, chewing CPU for fo like four seconds. You're not going to miss it in that four second period there. It, you're going to see something happening for sure. Uh, if it's the CPU. So uh, that's, that's where I'm starting with this, John. I've got some other ideas, but what do you, what do you think? Um, the mention of time, you know, time, it seems the time machine backup is close uh, to the point where his CPU spikes. I mean, so it's I'm hours wondering. before, right? Well, he says that it occurs at 11 o'clock and he says the backup's usually complete by 10. I've had some cases, especially, uh, so I leave this machine asleep. Okay. But I have power nap activated. Um, and one thing it'll do is do a time machine backup when I, when I schedule it. Right. But it doesn't always do it when I schedule it with time machine editor. So could be time machine running over on. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 I mean, huh. Or yeah. I mean, just stay up until 11 and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it, but if he's interacting with the machine, like time machine might, right? Like, so that's why, but, but yeah, you got to stay up. You're, you're almost, I mean, could you look at log files? Yes. Um, you know, if you launch console on your Mac, I always do this from the terminal. So I'm, I'm always a little bit at a loss here, but uh, if you launch console and look at log reports, system log, that's going to show you with timestamps, and I believe system log converts them to your local time zone, which is awesome. So you're not having to do that math. You can, you can scroll back. I mean, there's a lot per minute here, but system log would be yet another thing to look at there for sure. Um, and, and see, you know, see what you get. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, you're heading down the right path, but yeah, make sure it's the CPU usage that's causing that and not, I mean, you know, I, I guess there are other things like if there's a hardware problem, the CPU would heat up that the timing of that seems far too consistent for this to be a hardware issue, though. Um, and, you know, SMC is an, I, I know we mentioned that in the last one, too, but SMC, if your fans are you, you've got like weird problems again, this is a little too consistent for for this. But but if you sort of exhaust everything else. Try the SMC reset. It, it you know it doesn't hurt, uh, in, in unless you've got a major problem. But even then, I'm not sure that it that it hurts. So yeah, yeah, interesting. It's fun. I like this. That we definitely we definitely have to do this more often. This is fun. Okay, um, let's go to Chris, shall we, John? Chris mm -hmm. says. Uh, Chris says. Um, uh, in, a, in an earlier episode, there was discussion about using a MacBook Pro as a desktop computer and battery best use. 
I don't recall if there was an end to that discussion about people using the MacBook Pro as a desktop and best battery use. Uh, since my MacBook Pro is in constant desktop mode, never unplugged or moved, what is the best battery use in this setup? Do I take it through a cycle of charge and discharge periodically? And if so, how often? Okay, so I'm not sure what model MacBook Pro we're talking about, but one that, like, I, I think... I'm going to be conservative and say in the last five years, I think it's more like the last seven years, but certainly anything released in the last five years, Apple has done some things uh, to address this. First, they're building the hardware to be smarter about battery management. And then more recently, Mac OS is being smarter about battery management too. And the end result is that you can be a lot more irresponsible uh, and I'll use air quotes for irresponsible about you and just leave your MacBook plugged in. And generally speaking, the battery will survive and live a long life. And what Apple does is make sure that it's not actually charging all the time. They're doing this with our iPhones now too, with predictive stuff so that they, they can kind of figure out, all right, you know what, what's happening here. What generally happens? When should I hit the last bit of the charge? How far should I let it slip down? Those sorts of things. Um, but if you know that you're going to like the worst thing for a battery is to sit at full charge and just have, you know, a slow trickle come in to sort of maintain that full charge. That is something that we've seen will kill the the life of the, the useful life of a battery because the capacity of it, the effective capacity of it will will drop precipitously over time. But if you're using your battery and, and uh, you know, I'll use Adam Christensen's phrase because I love it. If you're keeping the electrons flowing either in or out, that's really good for your battery. And John, I think you were the first one that showed us that that can even increase the battery's effective life. Right. So but Apple's doing a pretty good job with that. But if you're leaving it on your desk and you know that this is what you're doing to it, I would be a little more intentional and doing things uh, you know, on a regular basis like what you said with, you know, the, let it discharge all the way. Through. If you know you're going to be at your desk all day, unplug it, let it go all the way down to nothing, then plug it back in and let it come all the way back up like those sorts of things. But also. If you mimic what someone would be doing if they were bouncing from coffee shop to coffee shop every day and or classroom to classroom, because those are the environments where, where things have gone really well for people where you just, you know, okay, I'll plug it in for a couple hours and I'll unplug it for a couple hours. I'll plug it in for a couple hours and I'll unplug it. And then maybe tonight I'll leave it off. And then tomorrow I'll plug it back in. You could even come up with a schedule and do the same thing every week, every day of the week. Um, and that would, you know, probably work out. So, um, but there's an app that'll help you with some of that called fruit juice. And, um, it, it, it's not as necessary for most people, uh, these days, but for your scenario, I would use fruit juice cause it's going to remind you, Hey, you haven't done this in a while. Go ahead and do it. So, um, I don't know. So you, you're, you use a laptop as a, as your main machine far more than me. I think you use your laptop mm -hmm. as, a, as your main machine, right, John? Yes. Yeah. So, what do you what what do you think? Um what I I was looking around and I found uh, just looking for articles about this this very thing sure. and the thing that I proved to myself and, and I found one article and their advice was uh don't do the full you don't want to let it drop all the way down and then charge it all the way up. Oh. 
Okay. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Ah. And so when I changed my behavior, that actually improved my uh, uh, battery life. Is that what I do now? Is that you know, if it's between, uh, if it's around twenty or up around eighty, is is where uh, I'll let it discharge to or, or charge. Yep. Um, and then Apple also added this uh, feature in a recent update that um, manages the battery charging a, a little better. A little better, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. That's that's what I do right now. I think my, yeah, last I looked at my MacBook, I think it's at, um, it's at like 88%. It was 90 when we, we talked about this last. So, uh, okay. So, so right. it's working for me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, you want to uh, you want to take us to Robbie, John? Yes. Uh, where are we, Robbie? Um, where is he? Hold on. Uh, there he is. Got him. All right. Okay. Uh, is it possible to update slash change the username on my account? Uh, and the answer is yes. Okay. Um. Though you got to uh, you got to dig uh, kind of deep, but um, what you want to do is you want to go to System Preferences, Users and Groups, um, and then you'll see a little lock, and you want to unlock the lock. Uh, once you unlock the lock, uh, right click on your user, and you'll see Advanced Options dot dot dot. Well, click on that, and you will see a whole bunch of fields um, that you can change. And the one, there's one called full name. Well, change that to whatever you want and, um, and that'll do it for you. Um, as it, be careful though, because there, there, you can screw things up majorly if you change the wrong things in this box. And they even say warning, changing these settings might damage this account and prevent the user from logging in. So just keep that in mind. Interesting. Okay. So I'm looking at this. Um, and if it logged into my Dave Hamilton account on my iMac mm -hmm. here, uh, there's the big warning that says changing these settings might damage this account and prevent the user from logging yep. in. Yep. Okay, good. What I find interesting is I can change everything on this list and there are some scary things here. You can change your user ID. I would not recommend that. Um, unless you know exactly what you're doing, the, you can change the group. Change your full name, as you pointed out, your login shell. That's interesting. I didn't realize I could change my shell here. I used to do that from the terminal. That's good. Your home directory, again, choose wisely, but you can do it. And then there's some aliases, and I'm not entirely sure what those are, and I wouldn't mess with them until I was. You can change the Apple ID associated with an account. The one thing that I can't change to the account with which I am currently logged in is my, my short account name. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's grayed out. However, if I look at the other users on this machine and I do the same thing and go to advanced options, I can change the account name. Now, hmm. by default, the short name, the account name is the same as the home folder name. So, you know, if it's if the account name is uh, Dave, for example, all lowercase, the home directory would be slash users slash Dave. I can hmm. change the account name of another user. But that doesn't change their home directory name. And I could change their home directory mm -hmm. name, but I would have to be very careful to keep that in sync and all of that stuff. So uh, so it is possible to change all of it, but 
proceed with caution. Heed that warning at the top of the page very carefully. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize you could change the short name of a user. Um, but I, but I, I mean, yeah, I yeah. think it's grayed out because it, you're, it, it's the admin user. I think cause you're logged in. I think that's what it or is. You're logged in. Yeah. 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 Probably yeah. best not though. You can, though I was able to, ch- it, I was able to change the full name and I didn't have to restart. So they're kind of, Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Huh? Yeah. I, I changed it and then went to the, uh, you know, went to the lock screen and then, uh, you know, typed in the new name or actually it pre-populated it with the, the newer name. Wow. I thought was kind of interesting. That is interesting. So. Huh? Huh? All right. Well, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. All right. Um, good, good, good. Okay. All right. Well, that one, that, that one we actually got there. I like it. Um, and, and in the, uh, in the chat room, Brian Monroe says, uh, it, this is you can change your username, but it doesn't change the home folder name associated with it. Right. You'd have to do that separately and manually. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is this is one of those things where it's helpful to have a test user that is an admin or, a, you know, some other alternative user on your Mac, not just for for cha- for confirming things and troubleshooting, but also for this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Interesting. 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 Yeah. Cool. Fun. All right. Um, I think we've got one more geek challenge and then we've got some uh, Wi-Fi stuff to dig into. And thankfully we have time to do that, which I'm stoked about. So, uh, but let's go. I, I don't know that we're going to, this one, I believe John is going to be a true geek challenge, but let's see. Steven asks, my wife has a work iPhone that she doesn't always want to lug around, but she also doesn't want to miss calls or texts to. Is there a way to receive a notification on her other iPhone for when her work phone receives a call or text? And man, I don't like we're we're talking about wanting push notifications from one device to another. Very specific ones, though, for for text and calls. Unfortunately, third party apps don't get to know when you've received a text or a call. So it's not like you could have some app running. I, I, I feel like, I mean, all right, so here's my crazy idea, John, go bear with me on this. I don't think her people at work are going to be happy about this idea, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to send it out there. Anyway, you could take the phone number from that phone and make it into a Google voice number. Okay. And, and you can convert a cell phone to a Google voice. I think it costs 20 bucks and it's a one-time fee. And then, and then you're done. So you convert the Google voice, the, the cell phone number to a Google voice number. And then you have it point to whatever the new number is that you're going to get for that phone. And you're going to keep that number very private, right? Cause you don't want anybody to know it. Cause otherwise you'd have to do this again. Um, and then you have it, you know, uh, forward text messages to that phone and forward phone calls to that phone so that that phone now functions essentially as it would. You need to be very careful when you're making calls out that you do it using the Google voice app and not the phone app because uh, otherwise you'd be exposing your number. I guess you could, I guess you could make your number uh, uh, not show, not show up in caller ID. And then, and then, so that problem solved. Okay. So Google voice forwarding, and hide your number from caller ID so that no one accidentally gets it. But you got to use the Google voice app for your text messages, not your main phone. So maybe don't even have them 
don't have it forward text messages, just have it forward calls. And then you'd get your text messages with via notification in the Google voice app. Well, here's the fun part. You can log into the Google voice app on both phones. So that would, um, that would get you there. And you can see when a call comes in, it, it, it like the Google voice app says you're having, you're getting a call. So, uh, I think, I think that's, that's, that um, it, there's some comments in the chat room that I'll, I'll parse through John, unless you've already parsed through them, but do you have any, any thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, my thought was pretty much what you indicated is, you know, so do, do some sort of forwarding. Yeah. Um, and your uh, cell phone provider may, may do that as well. Yep. And actually uh, some people have suggested that in our chat room. Here. There you go. Okay. Yeah, right. Warren in the chat room says, um, could you use something called digits from T-Mobile for a work phone number and use the app? Interesting. Right. Yes. Different carriers do different things. I like this. Yeah, right. Because you can have with as a Verizon user, John, you were able to have te like text messages forwarded to something else. Right. While you were traveling once or something. I, I remember you saying that. Um, I, yeah, no, oh, no, nah, this was different. Uh, but yeah, I tra I traveled to, um, uh, France a number of years ago okay. and actually their solution. So because they were CDMA, uh, that wasn't supported totally in France. Right. So, uh, but what they did is they would, they would lend me, um, another phone that my number was forwarded to, uh -huh. um, interesting. Yeah, now, of course, you know, the current iPhone should work just fine when I'm yes. in, in Europe. Yeah. Well, as long as you're willing to pay it, your mm -hmm. provider, whoever oh, that right. is, right? Like, yeah, they're mm -hmm. functionally, technically, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fun. Good. All right, John. Um, I do want to go to the Wi-Fi stuff, but um, I also want to talk about our sponsors. If that works for you, my friend. Awesome. All right. Look, you hear me talk about Linode all the time because at Linode.com slash MGG, you can get a $20 credit to get started with their amazing servers and infrastructure. So I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction today. What if you want to set up a WordPress server? Think about that. What would you do? You would have to figure out where to host it, how to host it, how to install it, all of that stuff. You might go and ask your favorite nerd, right? Because that's what we do here. Like, you, you know, like so that makes sense. Well, you can skip all those steps because you're really not skipping anything. Linode's just taking care of it for you. You go to linode.com slash MGG. You sign up. You don't even have to put a credit card in because you've got that free $20 credit. And you just tell Linode's cloud manager you want to spin up a WordPress server. And then that's it. Now you've got a WordPress server and you could do it on their $5 a month nanode server. And you could do that for four months with your $20 credit. So what are you waiting for? Go linode.com slash MGG. Spin up your first server. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. All right. Look, you know, with everything that's going on here, a lot of us, me included, I've talked about it on the show, are feeling anxious or stressed or depressed I've been experiencing re-entry anxiety, very different thing for me, and it's good to have somebody to talk to, but it can be hard finding a doctor to talk to, especially now, and that's
That's why I'm really excited about our next sponsor, Plush Care, because Plush Care knows that your mental health is just as important as your physical health. And their primary care physicians are here for you seven days a week to help you start feeling better as soon as possible. And it's all telehealth and you can get same day appointments. This is pretty good. In addition to being primary care physicians who handle ongoing and urgent care, they also treat a wide range of common mental health issues like anxiety, depression, stress, or even trouble sleeping. They'll discuss treatment options with you, and they can even, because they're doctors, they can have your prescriptions sent to your local pharmacy as needed. Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers and is available in all 50 states. So Plush Care makes it easier than ever to take care of yourself inside and out. You can start your membership today by going to plushcare.com MGG, where you can start your free 30-day trial. That's plushcare, P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E.com slash MGG for a free 30-day trial, plushcare.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Plush Care for doing what they're doing and also for sponsoring this episode. I have another way that I help remove my stress, and that's by using Text Expander because you get started at TextExpander.com slash podcast. And man, this is where you're going to get a tool that is going to change the way you do your work. I always say I really prioritize accuracy and I also prioritize efficiency. Sometimes those two things fight each other. Because, you know, usually in order to be accurate, you have to take extra time and vice versa, right? Inverse is better than the square of the roots. And now with Text Expander, you can do both. Because the way Text Expander works, you're taking all of those things that you type over and over again and you put them into Text Expander so that you're not digging through your sent folder finding when was the last time I emailed this thing or what was that thing I said? I like that magic phrase I came up with. Put your magic phrases into Text Expander and then you can invoke them with a click of your mouse or you type a little short snippet that expands into your larger magic phrase or even magic document way better than copy and paste. Better than scripts and templates, Text Expander allows you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Check it out. TextExpander.com slash podcast and increase your productivity today. Listeners to this show get 20% off their first year, which is awesome. So thanks to Text Expander for that. And thanks for sponsoring this episode. John. While we were in the uh, the d doing the ads here, uh, Eric DSA came up with an answer for Stephen's uh, question about his wife with the two phones, and I like this because it keeps things tidy. Assuming that it's an iPhone that she has for work, get an Apple Watch, marry that to the iPhone, and now that Apple Watch. We'll get text messages and phone calls from the work iPhone, even when the regular the work iPhone isn't uh, isn't right there. Now, it means that you can't sync that with your personal phone like you can only have your phone sync to one Apple Watch, but or your Apple Watch does sync to one phone more uh, relevantly. But that would be interesting. So I like that. I like it. I don't I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, 
I promised Wi-Fi, so let's uh, let's dig in and and talk talk Wi-Fi a little bit here. We'll we'll start with James because uh, we've got well networking and Wi-Fi is what we have today. And uh, he says, my girlfriend and I are moving to a new condo soon, and I'm looking to outfit the new place with several HomeKit devices in a reliable config. At our previous 950 square foot place, we had an Ecobee thermostat, a bunch of Lutron smart switches, a bunch of Hue bulbs, a couple of HomePods, all connected to a single uh, Linksys Velop node. So it's a mesh system, but it, they just had one node of it because that's all they needed for their the size of their place. Um, and he said, you know, it was the, configured with the same SSID as most meshes are for both 2.4 and, and 5 gigahertz and a Comcast connection at 300 down and 12 up. The problems with that setup, uh, the Lutron switches all needed to be reset every few months and two eventually stopped controlling the lights at all. HomeKit's commands were received by the switch. Uh, the LED on the switch changed state and the switch clicked, but the lights uh, didn't turn on. Interesting. Okay, the Ecobee thermostat also eventually stopped responding as far as HomeKit was concerned. HomeKit control was regained a couple of times after resetting the device, but eventually we treated it as a normal thermostat operating it only from the unit. Oh, like savages. Uh, the Apple TV in particular and other devices less often, despite all being within 20 to 30 feet of the, the router or access point, would attain slower than desired speeds, even while the directly connected VELOP would see full advertised speeds. So the new place is bigger, 1,100 square feet, and there will be more switches, well, maybe three times the number of switches. There will be another thermostat, um, and he says we're fine replacing the thermostats with any uh, type of HomeKit uh, option. doesn't have to be Ecobee. Uh, there will be a higher network demand uh, with both my girlfriend and I now working from home indefinitely. Of course, the Cox connection there will be 500 down and 10 up. So the questions are, should I configure the VELOP router differently to better support the 2.4 gigahertz HomeKit devices? Is there another router system I should get or be plume, which would better serve the many varied devices? Any opinion on HomeKit thermostats? I don't love the Ecobee in terms of aesthetics, he says. And certainly it's high maintenance in our experience does nothing to further that recommendation. He says, is there an appreciable difference between a direct ethernet connection to the main router of a mesh system and a direct connection to one of its nodes? Okay. So um, I, I want to kind of, there's a couple of things I want to dive into here, John. The, the first is that your home kit issues seem to be pretty far, par for the course from my standpoint. Um, and they're pretty par for the course for any of the, you know, smart home platforms with just HomeKit, the Amazon thing, smart things, you know, in some scenarios, things just don't stay connected and need a few reconnects per year. Uh, this has certainly been my experience with some things. Uh, and from reading it, it sounds like your Lutron problems weren't HomeKit at all. If the switch was changing state, HomeKit did its job, right? Rather just some Lutron problem, maybe a firmware update, you know. So uh, I don't know uh, about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep digging here. So the, we have two Ecobee thermostats here, one old one that is not natively HomeKit and one of the Gen 3 ones that is natively HomeKit. We use HomeBridge uh, or some other solution, depending on the day, to link the older one to HomeKit, um, and that's been pretty flawless, knock on wood, which is sort of crazy. Uh, but I don't change settings on my thermostats all that often, but I really haven't had problems with being connected to them. It, I, it, it's interesting. You said it wasn't working with HomeKit. Was it working with Ecobee's app? Because that would explain whether it was a HomeKit problem 
or a problem with your thermostat connecting to your Wi-Fi network, right? Because th those, those are, I mean, they're the same, but they're different. So it would be good to sort of isolate that out and see, is your Ecobee thermostat just not like losing its complete Wi-Fi connection? Because the Ecobee app should be able to control it, even if whatever smart home platform you're using, including HomeKit, cannot. Um, so that would be another one to, to, to check out. Um, as far as other HomeKit thermostats, uh, I know Honeywell's got one. Um, Nest is not natively HomeKit compatible, though we've talked about a couple of solutions, including HomeBridge on the show here, that can uh, that can make them sort of bridge them to being HomeKit. Uh, depending on where you live, you know my thoughts on on Nest versus Ecobee. Uh, uh, if you're living in a place where it gets cold enough to freeze, I think Ecobee is a better solution um, than than Nest because Nest tries to outsmart you and you probably already know what your schedule is and therefore can manage your own heat and save yourself a lot of money. Um, you know, Wi-Fi, it, it's not, it, it's, it's unclear whether there are issues. Uh, but I will say in general, what you're seeing is not atypical in that this smart home stuff, some of it truly is still, you know, kind of bleeding edge. The Velop unit and units have proved to be some of the, um, the, the word I want to use is dumb mesh systems uh, in that they don't have a lot of smarts and basically leave everything up to the clients. And this is not from reverse engineering their stuff. So I could be completely wrong. This is an experiential uh, evaluation that it seems like there is no hinting coming from them to shift things from 2.4 to five or from one mesh point to another. It doesn't look like any of that is happening. Uh, the, you know, the smarts that we see with, with systems from like Eero and, and plume plume really kind of leads the charge with the, with the smarts part of it and, you know, aggressively managing devices yet in an appropriate way. Uh, that I have not experienced that at all with develop systems. It's basically here's the network client devices you decide and, and you know, we're good to go. So, but you only had one develop point. So really I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't prefer the develop system because it doesn't do any of that stuff. That said, some systems that try and fail to do that stuff are worse because if they don't get it right now, your devices simply can't stay connected. So, um, so bear that in mind. Um, but I, but you know, Velop is, it's just not at the top of my list. Cause it's, it's to me a very sort of, like I said, dumb in that it doesn't have all the smarts mesh system. Um, and it's been, eh, it hasn't been that long. It's maybe six months since I've dug in. So I doubt things have changed, but they totally might have. Um, I'm not sure, depending on the layout of your apartments, I'm not sure that you even need a mesh system. You might be best served with a, you know, very powerful router, like a four by four style router um, that, that can, you know, serve everything. Uh, those, those four by four routers tend to the mesh systems usually are not four by four. Some of the, some of the Orbeez I'm sorry, are, but not necessarily in the way that you would need them to be. 
I would, I would see if you can live with one, um, one system, one mesh or one router and just make it a powerful one. So I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts, John. What do you, what do you think? Uh, first off, as far as reliability, I would disagree. I have never had a device fall off my smart home network because I use smart things and Z wave. Okay. So, so I would disagree or that has not been my experience. Sure. Um, sure. But I, the, the, my devices have never, I always see them when, that, when I'm, that doesn't surprise. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me. You, your house is, is fairly like compact in that regard. So you're not like the Z wave devices will create their own mesh. And I've seen it here with smart things where it's like the ones that are, you know, like in between, like, cause we've got a, a spread out set up here and it like some light bulbs just fall off and it's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to power cycle it. Well, cause it's, you know, it's trying to do its own meshing and there's other things in the way and things like that. So, so, I mean, yes, it's not true of a hundred percent of the scenarios, but it is true of a hundred percent of, mm-hmm. of the mesh of the smart home systems in certain scenarios. And it's possible in yep. his apartment that, you know, he was having tons of Wi-Fi interference from all of his neighbors. Um, I just set up for my, my daughter's um, off-campus apartment uh, for school. I just went in and her, like the Wi-Fi service that they were getting from Xfinity was terrible. I mean, if you Ethernet it in, you got your 300 down and 10 up, which is just, or 12 up, whatever it is, whatever they're supposed to get. But the way that it was, even with the the Xfinity X5 box or whatever, like at best they were getting maybe 50 megabits per second right next to the router. And of course I looked. Yeah. And it was like, this is terrible. Well, I set them up with a, uh, the Netgear C7800, which is the cable modem. uh, It's called the, the, it's called the Nighthawk X4S Doxis 3.1 ultra high speed cable modem and router. It's a four by four dual band router with a cable, a Doxus 3.1 cable modem built into it. So mm-hmm. we were able to save them the rental fees on their router and their cable modem. But this it's great. It, it does its own survey of the, the local network like congestion and shows mm-hmm. you how many networks are on each channel. And it's actually got a really nice graph. So you could say we easily oh. said, Oh, you know, move the move 2.4 to channel one, move the five gigahertz to whatever channel. I don't know. I forget what we picked, you know, 136 or something. And immediately it was like, oh, now you're getting 250 megabits per second uh, on Wi-Fi. And I was like, OK, hmm. now we're in business. Now, it doesn't mean that that's not going to have to change when everybody else moves in at the end of August <laughs> and sets up their Wi-Fi. I really feel like there should be an apartment manager that that is, you know, network manager that says, OK, you set up your stuff on channels, you know, one and 36, you set up yours on this and just balance it out because it's totally doable as anyone that's set up like an office building knows. But when you're uncoordinated, it's a mess. So anyway, that's, mm-hmm. you know, neither here nor there. Well, it's, it's yeah. actually there. Um, but anyway, sorry. yeah, as far as coverage, I'm probably so, so my, my place is 1200 square feet. Okay. And All I right. have, and I have, um, four euros. Um, covering it. And I think that's overkill. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as frequency selection, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, look at what the Euro sees and I'm like, oh yeah, that's 2.4. 
it, it, it connected at 2.4 gigahertz. So right. I've never had an issue with any of my smart home things. And yeah, most, I, I guess. No, Eero's pretty good with it in terms of managing the smart home things. Yeah. No, that's totally true. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, well, the, it's like, hey, you want to be on 2.4? Okay, sure. <laughs> right. Right. So I, I've never had an issue with, with uh, uh, you know, something not being able to connect to my Wi-Fi because, uh, you know, it got confused about the frequency. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that that and that is a common problem with smart home stuff, especially with mesh systems where you've got the same SSID. It can, you know, um, especially if you're equidistant. I noticed an interesting feature in the um, in the TP-Link Deco uh, app where which I've got set up for some of my relatives over Maine. I was just in there the other day because I like to, that's why I have it set up for them. I like to see like, how does it, what's, what features have they added? What is it doing? And you can tell any, you can go into each connected device and turn off meshing on it, which means it won't let it, it won't encourage it nor let it move to another mesh point, which is great. I guess it would let it, but it won't encourage it with like 802.11R or whatever that is. So it's not going to do that crazy thing where it bounces around and, and that can be super helpful if you've got something where you're like, yep, nope, this is connected to the right thing and it's in a fixed spot. So please don't, you know, and you can just turn it off for that one and it won't send any hints to that one, but it'll keep doing it for the rest, which I really kind of liked. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty good. Um, I, I think plume and Eero are doing something similar, but they're doing it in an automatic way. They're profiling the device and saying, okay, look, that's a television or, or that's a thermostat. Do not tell it to jump to different things. Like that doesn't make any sense. Leave it right where it is because it's not moving around the house, you know, find the best one and, and let it find the best one and just let it do its thing. Um, and my guess is it's doing that with other smart home stuff too. So yeah, I don't know. Fun stuff, Mr. Braun. Fun stuff. Um, yeah, well, and as far as the, I'm also with you on the uh, on the router, as you could probably get away with, uh, yeah, it's been a while since I had a standalone. The last standalone one I had was the uh, TP-Link Archer C7, which mm -hmm. at one point was, uh, was a pick of a wire cutter or somebody like yeah. that. And, uh, and it did great. No, those do, I agree, those do great, yeah. Those the, the, they'd still be, you know, I mean, as far as like relatively inexpensive standalone routers, I, I like the TP-Link archers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, they don't quite have the features of like the Synology um, RT2600, right? But mm -hmm. if you don't need those, then why, you know, why go out of your way for them? So, yeah, no, I, I, I like that. Yep. So if, but I would say, and I would say that for that size place, Again, depending on how many devices you're going to have truly active and stuff, you might be uh, best served with a single, if if you can be centralized, especially a single, very powerful, you know, four by four router like the Synology RT2600. That might be your best option. It's, it's, you know, every place is different. It's hard to give universal advice, but um, but yeah, sizing wise, that that might do it for you. It depends. But, you know, if the walls have have plaster in them well then no you know you're going to need maybe more mesh points than john so um yeah yeah just depends all right fun 
Fun, fun. Okay. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Mace here who asks, uh, we will soon be finishing our basement. Uh, what should we use if I want to put ethernet in any overall best practices? So these days, John, I think it's either cat six, a or cat seven ethernet that's recommended in homes. And I'll put a, a link to a, uh, an article that has a great chart in it that, that kind of shows what things can do. Right. So cat six is capable of doing either gigabit or 10 gigabit ethernet and the distance dictates it. So 50 meters, you get 10 gig, a hundred meters, 50 to a hundred meters, you get one gig ethernet. Um, cat seven will do 10 gig for all hundred uh, meters. So, you know, if I, if it were me, I'd probably do cat seven. There is cat eight out there, but that's rated up to 25 gigs and, and even 40 gigs, depending on how you're doing things. Like it, it, it it's expensive overkill is what that turns out to be. So I, I think, I think 10 gig would, you know, cat seven would be the, um, would be the way to go. I don't know. What do you think, Mr. Braun? Um, yeah, I suppose but, uh, all of my cables are 5e, which is fine for uh for gigabit. Okay, yeah. yeah if you're uh, totally. Yeah. But if I had to do it now, I would assume that my network will migrate to a 10 gig, so yeah, I would you know, get more expensive. Yeah. Moving moving forward. Yeah, I you know, yeah, exactly. And you know, I've I've run 10 gig on cat 5e cables before. It 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 it, 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 it works sometimes. For a short distance, I think. It, yeah. 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 It's not oh, rated uh, for it. And and mm -hmm. don't be surprised when it doesn't work the way you want. But it can work. It, you know, it's just like you said. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Um, you know, we kind of went through this, but <clears throat> Mark asks uh, related to the question that we just answered for James. He says, I purchased the Orbi 6 as I needed a fast connection in my basement for work and getting Ethernet from the second floor where the Comcast router is wasn't an easily doable task. The Orbi satellite has two Ethernet connections, one of which I put into a Cisco switch for my three computers and a printer. I thought purchasing a Wi-Fi 6 device would give me a few years before I had to upgrade. I was moving from my bedroom office where my Comcast router is into my basement, which is more spacious than the bedroom. Now the interesting part. I configured my Orbi to have the same SSID as my Comcast SSID. Then I changed my Comcast SSID and set it not to broadcast. Okay. Everything was restarted. My connection tests using the Orbi were smoking fast. My Nest thermostat went offline a few days after uh, and continued to go offline every day or so. After changing, after charging the Nest and then resetting it several times, I changed my Orbi and Comcast SSID back to their original settings. And after changing them back, the uh, Nest on Comcast Wi-Fi uh, wi and Orbi on its own, I had no Nest issues over the past week. So, did having the Orbi in router mode drain the Nest? An Orbi satellite was less than 15 feet from the Nest. Should the Orbi or Comcast have been in bridge mode? Should I have had the uh, Comcast and Orbi on the same SSID? I don't want to change the name of the network as family know it and several household devices are already configured with that name. The Orbi can't be returned as I threw away the box after the initial changes seemed to be okay. 
and I still need the basement connection. Okay. So a couple of solutions here. You're running into, it sounds like you're running into that issue where your nest thermostat is jumping between two mesh points and can't decide where it is and therefore burning out its, you know, it battery faster than it, than it should. So one thing to do would be set the, I totally get that you don't want to, that you want to have an SSID for your house, regardless of what network is, is broadcasting it. No problem. So do that, you know, set your Orbi to that one. Then I would go through and re well do that. And then I would turn off the Wi-Fi. Don't just have it hide the SSID on your uh, on your Comcast thing on your Comcast router. I would I would turn like make it not broadcast Wi-Fi at all. Turn the radios off. I, it, this is possible on most of those. So do that, and then reconfigure your Nest. I know your Nest already knows about the um, the the SSID and all of that. It's possible. And I don't know this, but it's possible that it's caching the MAC address of the access point to which it was connecting, a.k.a. your Comcast router. And if it's seeing that, it may simply be trying to connect to that one and not able to because the SSID and password are now different. Uh, and that may be what's going on. So kill that. Kill, you know, make your Orbeez the only thing that broadcast and then go through the setup process of your Nest again and reattach it to, yes, your existing Wi-Fi network. I think that's going to help you here because it's going to get the nest set up with, okay, this is the device to which I am connecting a lot of smart. I know we don't think about it this way, but our, all our devices choose a Mac address to connect to the SSID just gets, makes it easy to find that. And also it allows for all of this meshing and roaming to happen because it knows, Oh, I should connect to other ones as it moves around a lot of smart home devices get themselves fixated on a Mac address, not on an SSID. And that may be where you are. Uh, that may be what's going wrong here. So once that Mac address is no longer broadcasting, then go through the process. So that's, that's my thoughts on this. I don't know. What do you think, John? Um, the, the uh, next door community that I was telling you about before, um, most of the success stories are people not using um, just like you suggested here is, is people turning off the yeah. Wi-Fi in the provided one and doing your own. Okay. So that's how they're solving them is killing off the, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's the conclusion funny. is that, yeah. Um, you know, the cable modem part of it is okay, but the Wi-Fi part, you probably want to do your own thing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we had a very similar question from Stephen. You know, this this is an issue, and Stephen's also using the Orbi, um, who it sounds like it's bouncing between two devices, and uh, and the Orbi is another one of those mesh systems that doesn't quite have the same level of of device specific, like client device specific smarts, like the Plume and the and the Eero do, and so. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that you're running into issues that many of you are running into issues like this. If you can turn off 802.11R or seamless roaming or fast roaming rather is, is often what it's called. And I don't know if Orbi gives you this option, but if you can turn off fast roaming 802.11R is what it, what the protocol is that can help for sure. Um, 
another thing that you could do, and I, and I know this, this stinks to think about is if you need to use the Orbi, you know, in a scenario like this and it it's doing fine and, and getting your devices, what you need, um, Try going into the Orbi web interface. I'll put a, a, a link to this um, because you might be able to set a different SSID on the 2.4 gigahertz band. I know this was possible with earlier versions of the Orbi firmware. I think it's pos still possible. And if you split that out and set one of the mesh points, specifically the one that's closest to your, you know, whatever IoT device or devices are are you know having problems set the 2.4 gigahertz network to a different network name that can help um but again you know plume and eero because they're doing those sort of cloud-based smarts where they know okay with this particular device this is how we have to treat it and treating each device you know profiling the type of device and and applying that profile they tend not to have these problems um and, and it makes a difference. Of course, it's cloud managed and some people don't like that. And I totally get that. But this is this is where the, you know, the the this is why things like Unify from Ubiquity exist, because you can set different profiles for specifically for different devices. You can really get in there. And of course, you can get yourself into huge trouble by you know changing all that stuff. But at the same time, you get yourself what you want. So uh, but try the Orbi web interface that might do it. Uh, and, and Brian Monroe in the chat room, thank you, says that, yes, there is a setting for fast roaming on the Orbi. Try turning that off. That may well solve your, uh, your problems. What it would, what, what fast roaming brings us though, is the ability to be on a VoIP call and, you know, walk around the house and have it not lose the VoIP call as often because it's doing that quick handoff from uh from device to device so or from access point to access point so i don't know what do you think man any anything that you've got for uh for this one nope okay all right well i feel like we are um we are very very close to the end here uh you know what let's let louis share uh a solution to a question that we had back in 825 Hey guys, uh, I was just listening to the Maybe it's podcast Lewis. and uh, was a little disturbed by uh, John's comment about uh, receiving a screen sharing request from AppleCare. Uh, I've been using the screen sharing uh, capability lately with my clients. I've normally used dedicated apps like Splashtop or LogMe and, or such, but uh, find that the messages route is just so damn simple. And that scares me a little bit. Um, really, all you need to know is the person's uh, iCloud address or phone number to, to send a request to share their screen. Uh, who's to say that I couldn't just change my username or my messages account name to AppleCare and send a random screen sharing request to John, knowing his phone number or, his, or one of his email addresses? Uh, just seems a little too simple. Um, wonder what your thoughts are on this yeah thanks sure it sounds like uh lewis maybe pulled his car over to to leave us that message and lots of people were passing him but but his point is is totally valid that you don't know that it was apple care that was trying to share your screen the other day right that was just somebody that knew your I mean, that's what it said right but, but I, I i recall uh, I recall the dialogue coming up 
when I did, when I was on the phone with them doing Apple care yes. uh, in the past. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But it could have been fake. Yeah. You're right. Mm. I know it's pretty interesting that, um, you could, you oh yes, it doesn't show you who it, it just shows you the name. I was going to say you could try and text them back, but it, there's no, um, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no way there. Yeah. Interesting. I like, I, I like the thought process there though. So, so, all right. Well, I think that's going to have to do it for, uh, for this one, Mr. Braun, unless, unless you've got anything else to, uh, to share here. Um, that mysterious value you were talking about before, um, just a, a mini tip here, but if you go to your airport a menu and you yes. hold down option yes. and you click on it, there's something, I think you were talking that this value you were talking about is the BSSID. The Mac address of the base station. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, option and holding and clicking on the, the airport menu will show you the BSSID of whatever you're talking to. So, yeah, if you want to dig in. That shows you a bunch of other good stuff too. Yeah, that is a handy thing. I forgot uh, that that was there. That's definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. I like it. I like it. What am I doing here? How come I can't find any of the things I want to find? All right. Uh, well, it's time to uh, to wind us out of here, my friend. Hey, look, I found the band. It's good. We try. You know, we try to find the band. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This is uh, this is one of our favorite things that we get to do, and, and we're very thankful that we get to do it uh, for all of you. And uh, and I do want to take a minute and thank all of our premium subscribers whose payments contributions have come in. MacGeekUp.com slash premium if you want to learn about that. Uh, this is not a mandatory thing. I know I say that all the time, but it, I find that important. This is completely voluntary. Uh, it does make a huge difference for us, but you do not need to be a premium subscriber to listen. Listening is the best thing you can do. Sending in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. Awesome. Telling other people about the show. Awesome. Helping uh, us by simply visiting our sponsors. Awesome. Whether you buy is between you and them, uh, but please, you know, check them out and see if they've got something that makes sense for you. And then obviously uh, all of you who, Uh, are interested in and can contribute to the premium program makes a huge difference as well. So with that, I want to thank uh, Abdullah from Reisterstown, uh, Greg from Los Angeles, Nick from Mount Clemens, Ron, we don't have an address for Ron, uh, Ari from Kensington, Deb from San Clement, Anthony with no address, Doug from North York, uh, Michael from Mission Hills, Philip from Tucson, Tim from Des Moines, Graham from Graham from Yelverton, James from Brandon, Robert from Oklahoma City, Bob from La Peche, Timothy from West Windsor, and Timothy from Hendersonville, uh, Jay Walter from Long Island City, Jim from San Jose, Santiago from Palm City, Chris from Chorleywood, John from Wake Forest, Lee from Baton Rouge, Ken from Honolulu, George. From Lightwater, Michael from Robbins, Mark from Panama City, Dave from Saugerties, Racer, and we don't know where you're from, and that's okay, uh, Matthew from Forked River, David from Mount Prospect, Scott from Bourbonnaise, Clive from Burgess Hill, Tony, Frank from Tunbridge, David from Plainsboro, Jeff from Chesterton, Michael, James from Melville, Joseph from Marietta, Michael from Rochester, Barry from, um, maybe you're traveling again, it's possible wouldn't surprise me 
So be mm-hmm. safe wherever you are, my friend. Uh, Scott from Calabasas, Robert from Columbiana, Stephen from Plainfield, Mark, Brett from Pembroke, Pembroke Pines, easy for you to say, Ralph from Attleboro, Tim from Bright, William from Hebron, Dionisio from Oakland, Joseph from Shorewood, Dan, and James from Chester. Thanks to all of you, you rock. Uh, that's what I got today, John. But you got anything to tell okay. them? Anything, uh, places to find us? Anything like that? Anything you want to share? Um, there's always the Twitters. Okay. I'm John F. Braun. He's Dave Hamilton. There's Pilot Pete. There's Mac Geekab. And there's Mac Observer. All on Twitter. Twitter. Thanks so much, folks. We will see you next time. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors. You can visit all of them at MacGeekab.com slash sponsors. And, of course, from this episode, Linode.com slash MGG, PlushCare.com slash MGG, TextExpander.com slash podcast. Of course, our ongoing sponsors, Eero.com slash MGG, Linode.com. And we said Linode.com. They were in the episode. Barebones.com. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. All right, John, I got us into this. You got to get us out of this, man. What, uh, what lasting advice do you, do you have anything to share? The only way I can think of getting us out of this, Dave, is to offer people some good advice. And that's don't get caught. Made up.